The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. All right. Now we've been in Mark, and we're going to continue in Mark. And um, the, the title, oop, here we go, the title for today is a very simple title. We're in Mark chapter 5, and it says, don't be afraid, just believe. This is an incredibly wonderful passage of Scripture. So I want to ask you, in fact, I want to commend you for being at church today. You see, uh, recently some football fans had to dig out their chairs in order to enjoy the football game. I didn't ask you to do that today, okay? We didn't have to do that. You know, it's amazing how many excuses people come up with why they can't come to church. And we're not going to go down that road, but I'm just reminding you that if you're willing to dig out your seat at a football game, hallelujah, you did good, you came to church, all right? That's that's very, very important. I'm wondering, how many of us have ever actually bowed down in someone's presence? I mean, not because you tripped, but because you actually got down on your face before someone else. Wow. I mean, is that even appropriate? I mean, we live in a day and a time where, you know, we're not asked to do that. There was times in the past where that might have been so. But certainly, we should be willing to go face down before the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? In Mark chapter 5, we have three people who went face down before Jesus, and they all experienced a miracle. In his book, Face Down, Mac Redman says this, Face down worship always begins as a posture of the heart. It's people so desperate for the increase of Christ that they find themselves decreasing to the ground in an act of reverent submission. When a soul is so captivated by the Almighty, to bend low in true and total surrender seems the only appropriate response. Face down. Face down. Now, two of these folks were unclean according to the law. Right? In fact, the man was demon-possessed, He's unclean. He was insane. The woman was bleeding. She was unclean. But they both touched Jesus, and it didn't affect his cleanliness. (laughs) You know, two of the folks in the chapter ask for themselves. But today we find a man who's not asking for himself. He falls at Jesus' feet on behalf of his child. Listen, if you have children and you're seated here today, you know, we would all confess, listen, it's great to get an answer to prayer, but to get an answer to prayer for my kid, my child, my loved one, that's just amazing. That is just so thrilling. So, let's dig in. I'm reading from Mark chapter 5. And I'm beginning at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. 
Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha Kaloam, which means, my little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Is this an interruption or a divine appointment? Hmm. I'm kind of wrestling with that question. And so, where is the evidence in Mark 5 that this is not an interruption but a divine appointment? Well, first, we see Jairus expresses his desperate need for God. That sounds like a divine appointment to me. And then Jesus exhorts Jairus to keep trusting in God. Again, evidence of a divine appointment, not just an interruption. And then Jesus exposes those who doubt in God. Definitely an appointment. <laughs> Finally, Jesus executes the miraculous power of God. That's a divine appointment not an interruption. So, let's dive in together. Jairus expresses his desperate need. Now, where did this happen? Well, if you remember, 
The story of the demoniac was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, to the right on the map, in the area of the Decapolis. This is a Gentile area. Do you remember the last time they went across the lake? It was quite a ride. Do you remember that? Okay, so this time they get in a lake, uneventful. They just make their way to the other side, and I kind of believe most likely they're in Capernaum. I can't prove that. It's not said in the text, but it just makes sense that that's the home base of where this ministry is located. It's the home of Peter. It's, it's a place where Jesus seemed to settle in in his ministry in Galilee. So I think most likely it's in that area. Now, the interesting thing is there's a great contrast. The people in the Gentile area threw Jesus out. Get out of here. But the people in the Jewish side now, on the Western side, a big crowd gathers. And this is his growing popularity. And he's been to this city before. So, who comes and speaks to him? Well, it's this man by the name of Jairus. And um, he's a very prominent man. In great contrast to the anonymous woman who touched him on the journey, this guy is an elder, most likely, in the city. According to Jewish custom, there were seven elders in each town. And one of the elders would be in charge of the synagogue. And so he is called the synagogue ruler. What that means is he's a, he cares for the building, but he also organizes the worship services. In other words, he organizes what scripture is going to be read. He talks, he organizes the prayers that are going to be done. And most likely, most rulers of synagogues didn't teach. They weren't rabbis, but they would enlist the person that would teach. Get the idea? It's kind of like David. It's what David does, you know? He just does all this, and he does it so graciously and wonderfully. But that's, that's kind of what's happened here with Jairus. He's prominent. Did Jairus know Jesus? Hmm. I can't tell you for sure. But if it is Capernaum, Jesus had already been there, and if Jesus spoke at the synagogue or was in the synagogue, which he was, Jairus was the guy who probably arranged for all that. So most likely he knows Jesus. But now he needs Jesus. See? And Barclay says some interesting things that he probably had to renounce his prejudice. If he had any prejudice against Jesus, he had to get rid of that. Because he needs Jesus. He's seen the power of Jesus. He's seen the compassion of the Lord Jesus. He, he loses all his dignity because he just bows down at his feet. He puts away with that. He, he, he doesn't care what people think. And by the way, he doesn't really care about their opinion. If there's any in the synagogue who don't really like this new rabbi, doesn't matter to him. He's going to Jesus because he has a very desperate, desperate need. Luke tells us that the child he's pleading for is his only child. And he is pleading earnestly. The language is very, very clear. Great pleading. He's repeating it. He's saying it again and again. My daughter is on the verge of death. She's right at death's door. She's extremely ill. 
And Jairus has the faith to believe that if Jesus will accompany him to his house and touch his child, she will be healed. He believes that. And so Jesus goes with Jairus. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to come alongside. He didn't come to be served, right? That's a key verse for the whole book. But to serve. And that's what he's doing. He's going to go with Jairus to his home. Now, if Jairus came to Jesus, what about us? What are we doing? Do we take our desperate needs to Jesus? Or do we just talk about it with our friends? Or read a self-help book? Or do nothing? He went to Jesus. He's to be commended for this. You're not bothering Jesus when you go to him with your desperate needs, all right? He's not saying, oh, you again? He's not saying, you've got to quit, twist my arm to get me to do something. Oh, no. He's not like that at all. And I don't know why somehow we sometimes believe that. He delights in rescuing people. He delights in showing his power and his grace and his love and his forgiveness. You are not bothering him. You don't need to bother him. In fact, let's be honest. He's probably more willing to get involved than we are to invite him in. But Jairus is pleading earnestly. Now, Jesus exhorts Jairus to keep trusting in God. Verses 35 is a shocking verse. It, it, it says that while Jesus was still speaking, these people came from Jairus' house and they interrupt Jesus. That's not a good idea. All right, just, just saying. All right. They interrupt Jesus with really bad news. They came from his home. Maybe they're family members. There are the proverbial they. Do you ever notice this? People say, oh, they say this. Or they say, don't do that. And I'm always wondering, who are these they? Well, see, that's what this is in the text. It's unidentified. They're just some people. We don't know who they are. But they made their way to Jairus and to Jesus. Your daughter is dead. The worst news of all. Why bother the teacher anymore? He, he may have the power to heal sick people, but can he raise the dead? You see, like, just don't bother him anymore. This is too big a problem. But Jesus speaks of good faith. That's bad news. Do not be afraid, Jairus. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Listen, you should write that down and put it on your mirror, right? Because sometimes, too many times, we've gone to Jesus, we've prayed, and things get worse. And we're just afraid. We're just out of our mind. Wait a minute, I went to Jesus. I asked for his intervention and things got worse. Come on, you've been there, right? I've been there. And that's why these are such precious words. For me, it's like, 
It's just the most precious. The verb when it says that Jesus overheard, it can mean that, but it also could mean he ignored it. <laughs> he didn't even count what they were saying. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's a command. Just believe. Jairus had heard the woman's whole testimony of her healing, along with the rest in the crowd. But now his faith is being tested. Mm. One commentator says, he must learn that faith is something that trusts in the midst of hopelessness. Right in the middle of hopelessness, faith is still exercised. How many times do we face troubling turn of events? Things got worse. I think of a great verse, no temptation has overtaken you, except what is common to man. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not test you beyond what you are able to bear, but with the testing will provide a way out, a way of escape, why? So you can endure it. So your faith can grow. So you'll get stronger in the midst of this horribly bad news that you just received. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe not just in faith, but in Christ. Believe in God. There's the object of the faith, see. And that's why it works. It's not just faith in faith. There is a way out. You know, sometimes God just takes it all away, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes the illness lingers. Sometimes the relationship just isn't healed. Sometimes you're out of money and you don't know how you're going to pay the bill. You see, do not be afraid. Just believe. Mm. Now, Jesus exposes those who doubt in God. I like this part of the story. He, he limits the eyewitnesses. He says, we get to the house, Peter, James, and John, you're going in. The rest of you know. Now, I don't know why he does this, but we see in Scripture that there are times when he limits the eyewitnesses. And Peter, James, and John seem to have a very, very close relationship with Jesus. They're invited in at the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the only one of the apostles that see that. They're the only ones that are invited in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him. Now, I can understand Peter. I mean, heavens, he's going to preach at Pentecost, right? We've got to get him prepared. And John, he lived longer than any of them and wrote the book of Revelation at the end of the first century. But what about James? He's the first martyr. He, he died first among the apostles in Acts chapter 12. Listen, any investment in somebody else is worth it. You don't know the future. You invest in other people's lives. That's what Jesus did. And he has these eyewitnesses. Now, when he gets to the house, there are doubters there. And uh, I find this kind of interesting, and probably you do too. They, they, 
When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He didn't just see it, he inspected it. The word is very specific. He intentionally looks at this, these professional mourners. That, that's what they were in the first century. The Greeks did it, the Romans did it, the Phoenicians did it, the Assyrians did it. They all had professional mourners who came when somebody died. And, and the history shows a lot of interesting truth about this. They also love to play flutes. Now, if you play the flute, don't be embarrassed or upset, okay? It's just that that was the instrument of mourning, in the ancient world. They played flutes when Claudius died. They played flutes when the Romans lost a city. So this is very typical. And um, let, let me just share a few things about this. This is pretty interesting. They would tear their hair and their clothing, okay, when they're mourning. They're displaying their grief. The tearing of clothing had many regulations, okay? You only tore your clothing at the last time when the body's being buried, all right? That's when you start tearing your clothes. You're supposed to expose some sin but not be immodest, all right? And parents will tear clothing on the left side because that's where the heart is. Everybody else on the right side. And you're supposed to wear the torn clothing as a sign of your mourning for 30 days, and then you can repair it. Mourners are not permitted to work for three days, and you're not allowed to travel outside of your city for 30 days if you're mourning. You don't shave, you don't do anything for comfort, and if you're gonna read, even if you're gonna read the scriptures, you're only allowed to read Job or Jeremiah for obvious reasons. <laughs> you have to eat in your own home and you need to abstain from meat and wine. And get this, this is rather interesting. Some rabbis talked about, because they believe that the death came through water, the people that live are your neighbors. Three houses down, left and right, have to empty all their water jugs because the angel of death might be in the water. If the person who died was young and unmarried, there is a sort of wedding ceremony in the funeral rites. Very strange. Each mourner must go to the synagogue, and the people, when they get there, will shout to them to comfort them. We weep with those who weep. Now even the poorest of the poor would hire two flautists, is that the right term? Sounds good, flautists and one mourner. But Jairus is the synagogue ruler. So there's a big crowd there of people mourning the death of his only child of 12. Now Jesus says, Stop your crying. Stop your wailing. She's only asleep. Now this, commentators run wild with this. They're saying, see, she wasn't really dead. But that was a colloquialism for death. It's sometimes used in scripture. And actually, <laughs> this is kind of interesting, the, 
English word cemetery comes from the Greek word for sleep. What, what's in a cemetery? Bodies are sleeping. They're waiting for the, doo, 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 the trumpet to sound, and then they'll rise, see? But she was dead. Luke says when she's healed, her spirit comes back into her body. That doesn't sound like somebody who just passed out. That's someone who died. Jesus really knows how to interrupt funerals anyway. I mean, we know that. Now we rejoice if you get to see a miracle. If you get to be an eyewitness to a miracle, rejoice, be part of it, right? And when God's going to do something, there will always be doubters. There will always be mocking. There will always be laughing, ridicule. Don't let it stop you. It doesn't stop him. Finally, Jesus executes the miraculous power of God. (laughs) He approaches the little girl and he takes her by the hand as he leads into the room. And I say to you in Aramaic, little girl, get up. This is not miraculous sayings. This is just Jesus speaking in her native tongue. Little girl or little lamb. It can mean little lamb. Rise up, rise up, rise up, get up. It's a command. It's used 13 times as a command in the scripture. I found it very interesting. In Mark chapter 2, remember the paralyzed guy? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven or get up. Well, obviously, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but Jesus proved that he had forgiven his sin. How? By raising up the paralytic, and he went home, carrying his bed. Later in Mark 10, there's a blind man, and they said, Hey, Jesus, Jesus, he heard you. Get up. But more importantly, look at this. This is rather interesting. The verb is used for raising from the dead. In Matthew 10, this is what the Messiah will do. He'll heal the sick, raise the dead. Okay? In John 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. It's the same verb. Same verb. And then in John 2, 521, I could show you many verses of this. I'm just giving you a few. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Raising the dead, resurrection, this command is that same command. It's that same word. That's what's so exciting about what he says to this little girl. I am convinced she was truly dead. Like Lazarus, who had been in the tomb too long, he smelled. The miracle is immediate. Immediately she stood up. By the way, that's a different word. It's still used for resurrection in other places. She stood up. (laughs) She stood up. And then she began to walk. (laughs) Oh, and the eyewitnesses that were there were completely astonished. We have two words here. We have a verb and then a noun. The verb means you can't explain it. What just happened? And the noun is a word for deep emotion. I mean, you know, Jairus and his wife 
are just overwhelmed. They're just overwhelmed by the miracle that their daughter who was dead is now alive. And I love it. Jesus says, get her something to eat. She's hungry. She's going to have a long life, a longer life to live. But Jesus says, don't tell anybody. What? That's the most absurd thing I've ever heard him say. Don't tell anybody. Heavens, we had mourners here. We had flautists here. Everybody knows she died. <laughs> How can I keep it a secret? Do you know the Don Francisco song, got to tell somebody, got to tell somebody. Can you imagine them not telling people? I mean, it's really a hard command to follow. But Jesus, again, is keeping secret his office and his power as Messiah. And we've seen him do this before. Jesus did miracles. He's still capable of doing miracles. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can still do miracles. It's not always within his will to raise the dead or to heal the illness. For a believer, what's the ultimate healing? To die and go be with Jesus. Honestly, there's no more aches, there's no more medicine, there's no more pain, there's no more crying. But sometimes Jesus intervenes. Now James, he was the pastor. This is James, not John's brother, but this is Jesus' brother, who was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He's talking about church people, all right? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill? You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight? Now, this happens in other churches. It must be down the street, not here, right? No, but it can happen, and here's the, here's the key. You do not have because you do not ask God. Jairus asked. The woman who was bleeding touched him. The demoniac fell at his feet. If these people did it, why not us? When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Just a good word from James. Now what about this matter of interruptions? Bonhoeffer said this, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the great martyr of the Second World War, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans, sending us people with claims and petitions. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. In your daytimer, allow for interruptions. Sometimes the interruption is the divine appointment. You don't want to miss the miracle, do you? No. You want to be an eyewitness, right? So when the call comes in, answer the phone. You see? When the prompting of the Spirit is to speak, speak. And when the prompting of the Spirit is to be quiet, be quiet. You see, what about God are you not believing today? God is working in you. 
He's working in you. He promised that he'd keep working until the day of Christ Jesus. And that day hadn't come yet. So it's still in the future. He's working in you. He's working in you. And he wants to work through you. For where is handiwork? Created in Christ Jesus, what? To do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to have a meeting about. No. For us to read a book about. No. For us to do. And isn't that beautiful? That's just wonderful. What about God aren't you believing? Are you not believing that he's working in you? Are you not believing that he can work through you? Maybe we need to go face down. Maybe, maybe that's the problem. We, we need to get such a picture of God that, that we'll really run to him in desperation if necessary. Again, let me quote from Matt Redman in this wonderful little book. The heart of God loves a persevering worshiper who, though overwhelmed by many troubles, is overwhelmed even more by the beauty of God. Hmm. When we face up to the glory of God, we soon find ourselves face down in worship. To worship face down is the ultimate outward sign of inner reverence. All right? We're at the end. Let's picture ourselves face down. If you want to come and go face down, go ahead. We had a lady from Africa a few years ago. She came to worship with us, and right in the aisle, she got face down. But in our minds, let's, let's go face down, right at the feet of Jesus. Face down. Face down. If you can see his feet, see the scars in his feet for you. You're worshiping. You're acknowledging him like J. Iris did. Perhaps the situation has gotten worse. You've been here before, but now you're here again. Ask whatever you wish in his name. Whatever, however desperate or upset you are right now, ask, ask, keep asking. Knock, keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. I don't know what it is that's bothering you. I don't know what's on your heart. I know every person in this room has some things that are overwhelming them right now. And now's the time, like Jairus, to ask with earnest pleading. Oh, Lord, this is such a sacred moment. Oh, Lord, this is your moment. Your people are bowing before you. Some of us are crying out for this nation, for our society. We're pleading with you, oh God, bring revival. Let it start here. Some of us are just desperate about a child. And, we're, and we've prayed before, but we're coming again. Oh, we hear your word. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just keep believing. Persevere in your faith. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. Thank you, Lord, for being a God-answering God, a God who bleeds, a God who weeps, a God who sympathizes but then gets involved. 
Thank you, Lord, for your divine appointments that sometimes appear like interruptions. Oh, we praise you, Jesus, for in this world we do have trouble, but you have overcome the world. Amen and amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.